I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Amos, chapter 3. Amos, chapter 3. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 972. A lot of people think about the Bible as if it were uh, a book of answers, you know, to any question we might have, and the, and Bible, the Bible certainly has a lot of answers, but uh, over the years as I've gotten older, I've learned more and more that often what happens when I read God's Word is that He doesn't always answer the questions I have, but He gives me better questions to ask in the first place. He gives me questions that I would have never thought to ask. And uh, I want to begin this morning with a question like that, one that uh, I think is raised here in Amos. And uh, I want you to give some serious consideration to it as I ask it, because we're going to wrestle with this question uh, in these three chapters in Amos. So here's the question. The question is, would God ever oppose His own people? Would God ever oppose his own people. Take a moment to process that. Would God ever oppose his own people? A lot depends on how you define the word oppose. Uh, there are many places in Scripture where God's people take comfort in the fact that God is for them. Psalm 56, this I know that God is for me. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Romans 8, if God, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if you are in Christ, God the Father gave up his own son for you. The son died and was raised and is interceding for you. The Spirit has been given as a guarantee of God's unwavering commitment to you. So, yes, God is eternally for His people. And yet, in one of those strange things, the Bible also declares another truth. And these truths may seem at first contradictory until you listen to what Prophet Amos has to say. Psalm 119, It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. And just in case we thought that maybe the affliction came from someone other than God, the psalm goes on to say, I know, O Lord, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Proverbs 3, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. So two truths that seem contradictory at first glance. One is that God is eternally for His people, and the other is that God sometimes afflicts His people. He sometimes, if we might use the, the phrase, opposes His people. And I want us to see the connection between those two truths this morning here in Amos. And here's how I want to summarize it in one sentence, and this is going to be kind of our big idea that we're going to try to wrestle with in these three chapters. Because God is eternally for His people, He sometimes temporarily opposes them. Because God is eternally for His people, He sometimes temporarily opposes them. We're going to wrestle with that truth here in Amos. We're going to start in Amos chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word, 
that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now just pause there and notice what God has done, how He has been for His people. He's brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and yet now He is speaking a word against them. Those two truths are not contradicting one another. They are working together. Verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Let's stop there, and we'll pray together. Lord, we're thankful for how you spoke through your prophet Amos so many years ago and how he felt, um, as we can hear even in this passage, a burden that you have spoken, who can but prophesy. And so, Lord, I pray that although I am not inspired by you in the same way that he was, that I would be faithful to your word, to what you have spoken. And, Lord, that we would be attentive to what you have spoken. Lord, that we would set aside um, whatever other thoughts we might have except what you would have to say to us because you have indeed spoken. And so would you give us ears to hear this morning? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going we're gonna to focus really this morning on verse 2 because I don't know if someone, some Amos scholar would disagree with me, but my suggestion is that pretty much all of what God says to Israel through Amos can be found in some seed form in chapter 3, verse 2. So we're going to use this verse as kind of a springboard for this whole section of the book. So let's look carefully at verse 2. God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, when God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, of course, He is not saying, I'm only aware of 
this one nation on earth, as if he were oblivious to the existence of every other people but Israel. When God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, he means you are the only people with whom I have chosen to enter into a covenant relationship. In fact, not, not to be graphic in any way, but it might be helpful to think about the word know there in, in the way that the Old Testament uses it. Adam went into his wife and knew her, and she conceived and bore a son and gave the son the name Seth or what, what have you. That's the kind of relationship that we're talking about here, a covenant relationship. God is the husband, Israel is the wife. And he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You, Israel, are a special people. You have a unique covenant relationship with me that no other nation has. In other words, Israel has been incredibly privileged, and they had done nothing to deserve that privilege. God told them as much in the book of Deuteronomy. He said to them, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. So God says, I didn't choose you. I didn't bring you out with a mighty hand because you were so mighty and powerful and strong and I just had to have you. He says, because I love you and I was keeping the promise that I had sworn to Abraham. So, okay, so it's not because they were strong or powerful, but, but surely it's because Israel was was more righteous than the other nations, right? That's why God chose to use them and to have this special relationship with them. Nope. God tells them in Deuteronomy 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. So it's not because they were powerful. It's not because they were many in number. It's not because they were righteous. So when God says here through Amos, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. We need to know that that, that relationship was not on the basis of Israel's strength or righteousness or any other kind of thing that would make them desirable to the Lord. It was purely because of His unique, unearned love toward them. I want us to kind of try something hypothetical here with verse 2. I want us to imagine that God said something that He doesn't say. So let's imagine that God said in verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, but I will punish you for all your iniquities. How does that change what He says there if we just change the word therefore to the word but? You only have I known of all the families of the earth, but I will punish you for all your iniquities. It would sound, if we changed just that one word, like God was torn in Himself, as it were. He's sort of saying, I really love you guys, but I have to punish you for all your iniquities, as if His love for Israel and His decision to punish them were somehow at odds with one another. As if He was saying, I don't really want to punish you because I love you so much, but I feel like I have to. Instead, what God actually says is, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You are the people whom I have loved. You are the people whom I have chosen. You are the people with whom I've entered into a covenant. Therefore, because that's true, because I love you, because I've entered into a covenant with you, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. 
it is because Israel is the object of God's special covenant love that they are also the object of His loving discipline. That's why I said, because God is eternally for His people, He sometimes occasionally opposes them. I could have said, despite God being eternally for His people, He sometimes temporarily opposes them, as if God's eternal purpose and His immediate purpose were at odds with one another. But what I want you to see is that when God allows opposition, when He allows affliction, when He occasionally, temporarily opposes His people, it's not that He has stopped loving them in that moment. It's not that He says, I have to stop loving you in order to oppose you. It is that He demonstrates His love for them through that temporary loving opposition. And that truth is just as true of the church today as it was of Israel during Amos' generation. It was true then, it's true now. Because God is eternally for His people, He sometimes temporarily opposes them. And so I want us to ask the question, why did God oppose Israel? What were some of the iniquities for which He was going to punish them? He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So what is it about Israel? What is it that they had done that stirred up God's loving opposition? Because it may be that there's still a lesson for us to learn here as well. Look down at verse 13. God says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. There are two distinct kinds of sin that God is saying He's going to punish. The first is idolatry. Um, it's not entirely clear just from those two verses, but you can, you can get a sense of this when you read the rest of Amos and when you read some other places in the Old Testament. The city of Bethel, in this really kind of sad irony, the, 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 the name Bethel means house of God. And so there's a city called Bethel, house of God. And it was home to one of two golden calves in Israel. That's why the prophet Hosea calls that city, he refuses to call it Bethel. He calls it Beth-Avon, house of wickedness. Because he was saying it's not the house of God. You call it the house of God and yet you have made it the home of Baal. You have committed the exact same sin that stirred up God's anger at Mount Sinai. So idolatry, that's one kind of sin that God is going to punish them for. And then the second kind of sin that he singles out, you can hear kind of a hint at it in verse 15, and then it becomes way clearer as Amos goes. He says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And there's kind of the play on words there. Bethel, house of God. He's going to punish the altars of the house of God and then... In verse 15, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. What does that mean? Well, as Amos goes on, it becomes clear what he means. Israel had accumulated houses for themselves, and that could mean literal dwelling places, or it could mean sort of dynasties, these legacies of wealth and influence these households who were big and had big names and everyone knew them and everyone was afraid of them. God says, you've accumulated houses for yourselves and you've done this to the neglect of the poor among you. 
So that's the second kind of sin. The first was idolatry, and the second is that they have oppressed the poor. And this is one of the most consistent critiques that God makes through Amos. In fact, look at the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Amos speaks to the women of Israel when he says this. He says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. It has not escaped me that the irony that next Sunday is Mother's Day, and that passage could have fallen on Mother's Day. I'm thankful it didn't. Of course, as you go on, it's not that the women of Israel were the only ones who were guilty of oppressing the poor, but they too were involved in it. So this oppression, it's not just some patriarchal thing. It's not just, oh, the, the old men are out oppressing people. It's everybody. The, the men are involved. The women are involved. This sin was widespread in Israel. Look down with me at chapter 5, verse 10. We're going to read a couple other sections here. Chapter 5, verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So what God is showing Israel through Amos is that we cannot claim to be right with God if we will not do right by our fellow image bearers. In fact, Amos is one of many prophets through whom God tells His people that their religious activity is disgusting to him if it is not accompanied by a desire to obey him by doing justice to the most poor and oppressed. Look down at chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, let me try to just kind of put this in some context for us. Um, I am certain that there are many places whether it was in a church or whether it was in just kind of some other civic setting, where if I were to stand up and say the very things that Amos, or that God said through Amos about being concerned for the poor and the oppressed, there are some people who would say, that fella sounds like some kind of liberal. He's this kind of bleeding heart social justice warrior who is too woke for his own good. I mean, we don't, it's, I'm not speculating because what, is, what Martin Luther King Jr. quoted from Amos 5.24 quite often. And what did people do? They called him a communist and a socialist and all this sort of stuff. 
But folks, this is Bible 101. And so if we find that, that our political views or our social views are at odds with this, then it's not God with whom the problem is. It's us. There are few things that God is clearer about than His concern for the most vulnerable in society. In fact, over and over, especially in the Old Testament, there are four typical groups for whom God says consistently that He has a special concern. Widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor or oppressed. So in the ancient world, these were the people who were the most vulnerable. These were the people who were least likely to be able to return any kindness. Because there are lots of people that you could do kind things for, and they could return that kindness to you. Right? They could put your name on a plaque. They could, they could, you know, you might end up in a magazine or on a newspaper and say, look at this great thing he did. But there are some people who are so at the bottom, they're so unknown and so pushed down that if you do a kindness for them, they're never going to be able to pay you back. You're not going to end up in a press release. You're not going to have your name put on a building. But God sees and he honors those things which are aligned with his heart. Over and over and over in His Word, God warns His people about measuring our sense of rightness, not by what we profess, but by how we treat these kinds of people. And so if we fail or if we refuse to do this, then we demonstrate that our hearts and our values and our priorities are not aligned with God's. And what happens is we end up misrepresenting God to the world. Because we, we, we claim to be His people, and yet we look an awful lot like what we really care about is maintaining our own comfort and wealth and influence and status quo rather than doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. So, this is why God opposes His people. Because their hearts, their values, their priorities are not in alignment with His. What does God do when this happens? When His people misrepresent Him to the world, when their hearts and values and priorities have gotten out of alignment? Well, as we've said so many times today, because God is eternally for His people, He sometimes temporarily opposes them. And I want you to see here in Amos and other places in Scripture that this occasional temporary, loving opposition tends to accomplish two things at the same time. So there are two things that God does in and for His people through loving opposition. The first thing that God does is He removes those who don't really belong to Him. God removes those who don't really belong to Him. What do I mean by that? Well, it was true in Amos's generation, and it's still true today, that there are some there have always been some who outwardly associate with God's people, but who do not truly belong to the Lord. Not every Israelite truly had faith in the Lord. Not everyone who attends church or calls themselves a Christian today is truly born again. And so what God sometimes does is He sometimes uses opposition to remove some who never truly belong to Him. Amos pictures this truth in a, in a pretty grotesque way. Look back with me at chapter 3, verse 12. Thus says the Lord, 
as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear. So the picture there is uh, a lion has come and attacked a shepherd's flock and he, he sees the lion devouring a sheep and the shepherd goes and beats off the lion. He doesn't save the whole sheep, but he manages to get out a couple legs or maybe an ear. That's the picture. It's kind of gross. So shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. So that's a graphic image, but what's the point of it? God is about to hand His people over to a foreign nation to be taken into exile. But He's effectively saying, you're not going to be devoured entirely. Israel's not going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Why? Well, most importantly, because He still has a Redeemer that He has to send from Israel. And He's not going to allow that promise to be null and void. And so God is saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to snatch a remnant out of the mouth of the lion. It's not going to be like it was. I'm going to, it might be a, a leg or an ear or part of a couch or something like that. Not everyone's going to make it, but some will. He says something similar in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So, Israel's going to be greatly diminished, he says, through the exile, but they will not be totally annihilated. And then look again at chapter 5, verse 15. We read this just a minute ago. He says, Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So this imminent judgment that Israel is going to endure is a picture of final judgment. Because there is coming a day when, as Jesus said, the tares are going to be sifted from the wheat. The chaff is going to be driven away by the wind. The goats are going to be distinguished from the sheep. And until that day, in every generation, there will be some who are outwardly associated with the people of God, but who are not truly children of God. In every generation, Amos and in the early church and in the Reformation and today in every era, there have been goats who go to church with the sheep. There have been tares who grow among the wheat. There's coming a day when those things are going to be perfectly sifted out, but for now, it's not always easy to see which is which. But the point is that there are many examples, both in Scripture and in history, of God occasionally using affliction to drive away some of the chaff before that final day. You can, you can hear that truth articulated clearly in 1 John 2, where John describes some people who had, been, who had apparently professed faith in Christ. They had said, we follow Jesus, we trust in Him, and all those kind of things. They had been outwardly associated with the church, but then they wandered away. They denied the faith. They said, we don't believe that Jesus was really in the flesh, and we don't believe that you should love one another, and those kind of things. And so John writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. These are not people who, you know, said, I'm going to go to church down the road. These are people who said, I'm walking away from the faith. I'm leaving, I'm no longer a Christian. Or, or maybe I, I'm still going to call myself a Christian, but I'm going to define it in a way that the Bible doesn't define it. John says, 
they were not really ever of us. Because if they were really of us, they would have continued with us. Meaning, if they were really born again, if they were really, truly in Christ, then they would endure. But the fact that they have not endured shows that they were never born again in the first place. So that's the first thing that God accomplishes through His occasional, temporary, loving opposition. He reveals those who are truly His, and He removes those who do not belong to Him. The second thing that God does through His loving opposition is He refines those who do belong to Him. God refines those who do belong to Him. Affliction is sometimes like a chisel. It uh, chips away large chunks that don't belong on the final sculpture, and then it refines areas that need to be sanded and polished. And so when God lovingly opposes His own people, those who truly belong to Him are disciplined and refined. They're not lopped off of the block, but there are things in their life that are chipped away at, things that have to change, and they become more holy because God loves them and they belong to Him. I quoted earlier from Proverbs 3 as an example of one of the places in Scripture where we hear uh, God opposing or afflicting His people. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves. The author of Hebrews quotes that verse from Proverbs and then adds this God-inspired commentary. This is from Hebrews 12. He says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He disciplines for us, He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I'm fully aware that uh, if I were to be speaking to a, a block of stone right now and, and we're imagining in this hypothetical scenario that this is an animate block of stone that is capable of thought, and I were to say to this block of stone, hey, uh, the, the sculptor's coming along and he's got his chisel and he's got his you know, sanding block and his paper and he's going to come along and he's going to start chipping away some things at you. The block might think, yeah, that doesn't sound awfully fun. Um, but I want you to hear uh, in Hebrews 12 how this is meant to be an encouragement to us. He, the, the author of Hebrews goes on to say in the next few verses, he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So to use the analogy, here comes the sculptor. He's going to chisel away, but if you truly belong, if you're truly in Christ, you're not going to be chopped off. You're not going to be put out of joint, but you're going to be healed. He goes on to say there in Hebrews 12, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So, here's the practical principle for us. I mean, how, do we, how do we apply this? When a child of God faces difficulties or afflictions, 
you need to know that it's not that God is angry at you. All of God's wrath has been perfectly dealt to Christ on the cross. So when God looks at me, if I'm in Christ, He's not mad at me. He's not angry at me. If you're in Christ, He's not mad at you or angry at you. It is because He loves you, though, that He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. God is unwilling to leave us as we are. He's perfectly willing to accept us just as we are, but He's not willing to leave us just as we are. So when we experience difficulties or afflictions, we need to stop and ask, okay, Lord, what are you teaching me? What, what are you doing in this? What are some sins in my life about which you're trying to get my attention? Not because you're angry at me, but because I know I'm not sinless. So, so what is it that you're trying to do? What are you trying to awaken me to? that I can repent of, that I can be sanctified in? That What are some areas that you want to refine in my life? It may be that we need to, to, to ask, okay, Lord, are you trying to help me see that some of my values and some of my priorities haven't been aligned with yours? That maybe I've been, I've been living for this, and now you're showing me that I don't need to be living for this, but I need to be living for that? So, so what are you trying to do, Lord? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to refine in me? What are you trying to accomplish in me? And here is the beautiful thing, that when we have that kind of perspective, and it's not easy, and it's not a one-time thing. It's not that just one day a flip switches and then I get it. Oftentimes it is that sometimes I get it and sometimes I don't. And sometimes I have to be reminded of this. And so when we have that kind of perspective that God is using this loving opposition to refine those who belong to Him, then I can start to see that God's loving opposition in my life is a gift. It is a companion for my good. That's what, that's what Paul said, isn't it? God has given me this thorn in the flesh as a companion, this, this thing that travels with me so that I wouldn't become conceited. It hurts. It's painful. I don't like it. I've asked Him three times to take it away. And yet every time He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So when God afflicts His people, when He opposes His people, when He helps us to feel our weakness, that is a gift. And if we will allow it, it can be a companion that will travel with us on our earthly journey to keep us from becoming conceited, to keep us on the narrow way. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in just a moment. This is an opportunity for us to respond to the Word of God. And uh, I want to ask you to be prayerful with me in this, that... Um, that we would consider the good and loving purpose of our Father who disciplines those whom He loves. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for how You have spoken through Amos and how You have helped us to hear this truth that because of Your love 
for us because of your covenant with your people. You occasionally take us aside and discipline us. You punish us for our iniquities, not because you are angry with us, not because you uh, harbor any wrath toward us, but because you love us. We're thankful that in Christ we have an advocate with you, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We're thankful that He is the one who is the propitiator of sin, the one who has removed your wrath and made you uh, agreeable to us. Um, And I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of that truth today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to to ask those questions of... uh, What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to refine in your people? And Lord, I pray that we would be responsive to you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.